Good morning. Actually, it's not hardly morning anymore. Good afternoon. It's good to see everybody. I hate to start off this way, but if you are driving a Burgundy Escort with license plate BPG3097, your lights are on. And you can stand up right now and we'll all watch you go out to your car. <laughs> yes, I love it. Awesome. Yeah. Hey, just say a, a person after my own heart right there. Been there, done that way too many times. <laughs> We're going to continue this uh, biblical theme of the city that we started last week, and we've got a lot to cover, so I, just, I, I want to dive right into it. Um, if you don't have a Bible, just raise your hand. Uh, we'd love to get you one. Last week, we looked at how just the Bible starts with a garden, and it ends with the eternal city. And so you could really look at the Bible as a tale of two cities, the city of man, which we looked at in Babel last week, where everybody's out to make a name for themselves, or the city of God, the city that Pentecost produced, this missional community. And I think we're going to put a little bit more flesh, biblical flesh, on this idea this morning by looking at Genesis 18, the city of Sodom. Pray for me <laughs> as we look at this. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. Genesis 18. We're going to be looking at much of this chapter, but we'll just start reading at verse 16. When the men got up to leave, I need to just explain a few things already. The men, these, there are three men that came to visit Abraham to reassure Abraham of the promise of God, that this promise is going to be fulfilled in his life. And later on, the Bible called these men angels, one of which is the angel of the Lord. And I'll just kind of put my own take on the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, especially any time there's an animal sacrifice and the angel of the Lord there is present, I believe that's a theophany pre-incarnate Jesus. And so I see Jesus all over the Old Testament. And so Jesus is in our story today. When the men got up to leave, they walked down towards Sodom, and Abraham walked along with them to see them on their way. And then the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Even that's a crazy question. I mean, hey, you know, should, should we hide what we got these cool things that are going on in Crossroads. Should I tell you or not? <laughs> anyway, God's awesome. Should I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all the nations on the earth will be blessed through him. For I've chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just. And that right there, I'm not going to talk about that anymore, but I'd love for you to just even circle righteousness and justice there because everything that we're going to look at is connected to that. For his household, keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. Here's the purpose, so that... The Lord will bring about Abraham what he has promised him. And then the Lord said, The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great, and their sin is so grievous, that I will go down to see 
if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. The men turned away and went towards Sodom, but Abraham remained standing before the Lord. And then Abraham approached him and said, God, will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare? Spare there is the word forgive. Not spare, not forgive the place for the sake of the 50 righteous people in it. Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteousness with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? And the Lord said, if I find 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. And then Abraham spoke up again. Now that I've been so bold as to speak to the Lord, and I think he realized, wait a second, I might have been a little too bold that first time. God, I realize I am nothing but dust and ashes. But what if the number of righteous is five less than 50? Will you destroy the whole city because of those five people? If I find 40 there, God said, I will not destroy it. Once again, Abraham spoke to God. What if only 40 are found there? God said, for the sake of 40, I will not destroy it. And then Abraham said, may the Lord not be angry, but please let me speak. What if only 30 can be found there? And God answered, I will not do it if I find 30. Abraham said, now that I've been so bold as to speak to the Lord, what about 20? What if only 20 can be found there? God said, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then Abraham said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak just once more. What if only 10, 10 people can be found there who are righteous. God answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And when the Lord had finished speaking with Abraham, he left and Abraham returned home. This is God's word. You can be seated. First need to kind of just find our way, find where we are in God's story. Chapters before this, God made a promise to Noah to never again deal with evil by destroying the world through a flood. And now with this man, Abraham, God is setting in motion a whole different kind of plan to deal with the sin and evil of his creation. And we get a strong hint of what that plan involves in verse 18. When it says, Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation and all the nations of the earth will be blessed through him. God's plan. Massive. 
not just to save you and get you to heaven, but God's plan is to bless the nations of the earth. And bless really isn't a great word because it's a weak word in our English. But in the Hebrew, bless is much, much more stronger. Bless means to redeem, to transform, to make whole, leading to God's approval. And that's God's plan. His method, he's going to do it through a man. And he starts by saying, Abraham, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to change you. I'm going to transform you. I'm going to make you whole. And you're going to be a treasure in my eyes. And then he says, now partner with me to bless, to change, to transform, to redeem the world. Partner with me. And I think in verse 17, this is why God said, should I not tell Abraham what I'm about to do? Of course God is going to tell Abraham what he's about to do because God is partnering, partnering with Abraham and Abraham is partnering with God. I want us to know this morning, this is exactly how God works. He first blesses us, changes us, transforms us, makes us whole, and then just looks at us as the delight of his heart. And then he says, all right, I've changed you. I've, I've blessed you. Go be a blessing. Okay? Partner with me. And that's why I think what we're going to look at today is incredibly important to this community. Because I pray to God that we are not just a community that's all about being blessed. That we're not a community that just, like a kid in the candy store, just keeps getting all the candy for himself, but that we are a people who understand that we've been blessed, changed, transformed, made whole, bless the nations, the world. And so really what we're talking about, and this was the lingo that Jesus used, we're talking about the kingdom of heaven. It's about God bringing shalom out of chaos. And when the kingdom of God breaks in, it always, always breaks out. Producing the city of God. This missional, explosive community. If you're wondering what the kingdom of heaven or the city of God looks like, we're going to get a powerful picture of that today in Genesis chapter 18. We're going to see the kingdom of God in Abraham, and we're going to see the anti-kingdom in Sodom. And I really want to go back to verse 1 of chapter 18, because Abraham is sitting in his tent, the text says, in the heat of the day. Now, if you want a front row seat to the greatness of Abraham, the verse before this says, and Abraham was circumcised. No small thought, right, men? I mean, 
this is an old man here. And, of course, guys are like, let's not dwell on that right now too much. But last night I had my 12-year-old son, Gabe, here, and he gets in the car and he said, I think he already kind of thought he knew what it was, but he said, Dad, what's circumcision? Dads, I'll let you explain that to your sons. I'm not going to do that today, okay? But then after I explained it to him, he said, Dad, did that hurt? <laughs> Let's just say Abraham's probably in a little pain right now, okay? okay? The next, 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 this describes these, 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 and at this point in the game, they are strangers. They show up. What does he do? Now, if I'm Abraham, what I probably would do is I'd shut the door, the, the, the flap of my tent, and just kind of hope those strangers never saw me and just pass on by. But Abraham instantly runs to greet them. He then opens his home to them. He welcomes them in. He washes their feet. He kills the fatted calf. And the whole time you read there, you see Abraham just running around doing these things. In fact, the thing that blows me away is this. He and Sarah take three measurements of flour. Measurement, there's a siah. Now, my little footnote says that's 20 quarts. I did a little search on a siah, and this is what I came up with. This is what scholars say a siah is. It's anywhere, one siah is anywhere from 12 to 20 quarts. So they just use 36 to 60 quarts of flour. For who? I mean, this is a ton of bread for three strangers. Now, what I want us to see is this is more than Abraham and Sarah just being like these nice, hospitable people. This is God saying, you want to know what the kingdom of God looks like? It's this. It's Abraham sitting at the gate of his tent, welcoming, serving, pouring his life out for strangers. And in so doing, he's being the city of God. And in so doing, the kingdom of heaven is breaking forth. Let me take this a little bit further. The next chapter, chapter 19, verse 1. Now we're introduced to Lot in our story today. Lot's doing the same thing as Abraham, except instead of sitting at the gate of his tent, Lot is sitting at the gate of the city. Now I want to just show you what a city would have looked like in that day. So if I could just have the PowerPoint, you can see how technologically advanced they would have been. And this is a drawing from some archaeologist. And the reason I want to show you this is because in that day, that was salvation. That's salvation right there. For the stranger or the alien, the city was the place that welcomed them. For the homeless, the city was the place that sheltered them. For the people who were in trouble or whether there was war or family, it was the city that protected them and fed them. And so the city to them was salvation. Because in that day, their struggle 
was this. It was between the chaos, which was found outside the city, things like drought, famine, war, disease, and the shalom that was found inside the city, where there was health and well-being and safety and plenty. And the part of the city that represented this salvation was the city gates. I want to just take you a little bit closer so you can see that. There you see the city gates. Now the city gates was the place of jurisprudence. It's the place where the elders of the city, the Randy Heckmans in his former profession, it's where they sat, it's where all the cases were brought, and they were tried. The city gates also contained these chambers, and I just want to show you those right now. I don't know if you can see those, but these chambers store the city's food, the city's water, the city's supply. Sometimes there were even rooms where strangers and homeless people could find shelter. And so because this was the place where all the goods were distributed, this was also the place where people in need came. That's why the Bible often talks about the poor or the stranger within thy gate. Because it's here that the poor either dwelled or they came to get their needs met. And that's why the prophets also make it very clear that God will destroy the nation that oppresses the poor within their gate. Now let's bring this to our story. What should it tell us that Lot is sitting at the gates? Well, first of all, this guy's a player. He's a Randy Heckman in his former day. Randy had to take the, what do you call that, Randy? I don't even know if Randy's here right now, but took the, the robe off and put on, anyway, switch hats for being a judge to a pastor. But I think Lot is an elder of the city of Sodom. But more than this, this is what we need to see, this is what the Bible wants us to see, Lot is mirroring who? Abraham. Abraham sits at the gate of his tent. Lot sits at the gate of the city. And Lot treats strangers the same way Abraham does. And I know if you read the next part, you're going to see how also Lot, he washes their feet. He welcomes them into his home. In fact, he provides a meal, it says in verse 3. I wish the NIV had the actual translation. The word there is feast. But then you keep reading, and the story gets more and more bizarre because the men of Sodom now surround his house and want those strangers to violate and abuse them. And Lot is willing to sacrifice his daughters. Now, for any dad here right now, it's just like, what? What? But I don't want to get stuck there because 
I think what the Bible wants us to see is this, is that God's kingdom has everything to do with being city gates. And that the city of God, if that's what we are to be, must provide the biggest city gates imaginable, a place where people can bring their chaos and experience shalom. And so, what the kingdom of heaven, what the city of God is, it's an old man running around to extravagantly care for strangers, and it's a man who's willing to sacrifice even his own daughters. Now, if this text shows us the kingdom of God, city of God, the text also shows us the anti-kingdom and the city of man. Let me ask this question. What's Sodom's sin? Anybody want to? What's their sin? Homosexuality? We have words today in our English language as a result of the sin of Sodom. And I want to overgeneralize right now, and shame on me for doing that, but sometimes I just do that, but I'm going to think aloud for everyone. I think most of us, when we read this story, and we see how angry God is, he's angry, he's angry, and because we conclude that their sin is the sin of homosexuality, and then we see God's treatment of Sodom, we quickly conclude then, homosexuality must be the ultimate sin. I want to talk about this just for a second. Because the church of Jesus Christ is blowing it big time in the issue of homosexuality. We live in one of two extremes. We're either over here in this extreme and say, well, sexuality isn't a sin. I mean, God made them that way, and if this is the way that God made them, we need to let them just be true to who they are. No big deal. Or we go to this extreme and say, homosexuality is not only a sin, it's the ultimate sin. Are you kidding me? Look at this text. And what I want to say, because I think this is what the Bible wants to say, is this. Yes, homosexuality and acting that out is a sin, but it's no worse than any other sin. And when we find ourselves just gasping, oh my goodness, this person struggles with homosexuality. But then we don't gasp. When people live their lives in greed or jealousy or envy or gossip. But here's the deal. Homosexuality is not why God judges them. There's a deeper and greater sin going on. Turn to Ezekiel 16, verse 48. If you have a Bible like mine, this is found on page 596. 
Ezekiel gives commentary on our text today. And I'll start with verse 47. You, he's talking to the people of Israel, you not only walked in their ways, referring to Sodom, and copied their detestable practices, but in all your ways, you soon became more depraved than they. So what Ezekiel is saying is, people of God, you not only copied Sodom, you became worse than Sodom. And then he explains what the sin of Sodom was. As surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, your sister Sodom and her daughters, anytime you see her daughters like that after a city, it's referring to the towns and suburbs around Sodom, never did what you and your children have done. Now this was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and the needy. That's my sin. I'm overfed. I live amongst a people who are overfed. I'm overdressed. I live amongst a people who are overdressed. I'm oversheltered and overhoused, and I live amongst a people who are oversheltered and overhoused. And because of this, and maybe I just need to say this is my heart, but I've become unconcerned for the poor and the needy. See, Sodom's sin is they failed to be city gates. What they did with strangers is they abused and violated them rather than when I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. When I was a stranger, you welcomed me in. When I was a prisoner, you came and visited me. When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. And if you're kind of thinking, yeah, but, yeah, but, you know, look at what they wanted to do. Ezekiel's not taking liberty here. He's being consistent with the text. Look at Genesis 18, verse 20. And then the Lord said, the outcry, that word outcry is the Hebrew word tzedakah. But Zedekah against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sins so grievous that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry, as the Zedekah that has reached me. If not, I will know. Zedekah, found throughout the Bible, always refers to the loud wails and cries of the oppressed. The first time it's used is in Genesis 4. And God says, Abel's blood, Zedekah, it cries out to me. In Exodus 2, 
Another time where this word is used, this is when God's people are living as slaves under this harsh treatment of the Egyptian pharaohs. And God says, and they're, they're, Zedekiah, I heard it. And God responds. And then all of a sudden, uh, this whole thing comes full circle where God's people are no longer living as slaves, but God hears their cries. He hears their tzedakah. He makes them treasured possession. He places them in the promised land. And he says to them, listen to me. says do not take advantage of a widow or an orphan and if you do and they cry out to me I will certainly hear their tzedakah and then he says my anger will be aroused and I'll kill you if the tzedakah of the orphan and the widow and the stranger within thy gates reaches my ears. I will kill you with the sword. And your wives will become widows. And your children fatherless. This is serious. You know what this tells me about God and his heart? It tells me that God's heart bleeds. It bleeds for the underdog. It tells me that God's heart, it burns with love and compassion for the least of these. And you want to know the kind of people that God partners with? The kind of people God partners with are the Moseses of the world. In Exodus 2, it also tells us that Moses, he heard the tzedakah, the cries of the oppressed. And here in our text today, we see that God partners with people like Abraham who hear the tzedakah, the cries of the oppressed in Sodom. What about us? Will we hear the cry? Can you hear the cry right now? Zedekiah! Of the poor and homeless and the oppressed. See, this goes all the way back to partnership. Because God says, not only do I want to bless you, But after he blesses us, he says, I want to partner with you, and I want to partner with you to offer hope to the world. And when you see people living in chaos, I want to partner with you to bring my shalom to them. And so God's people ought to never look at things like oppression and recession or potentially depression and ask questions like where's God where's God in all this 
the question for us ought to be, where are you? And where are you? And where are we? And if this is all we are, a gathering, receiving blessing, and then just going home, living our lives, and then coming back and gathering, bless us. Read Isaiah 1. Read Isaiah 58. God says, I'm sick and tired of your sacred assemblies. I'm even sick of your prayers. I want you to partner with me to hear the tzedakah of that world out there. You know what's sad for me? I'm now watching the government doing what God intended for the church, the city of God to do. Is your life, I just want to ask a few questions. Is your life city gates? Do poor, needy, Hurting people come to you? Or let me take this to your street corner. Do neighbors know that you're the kind of person or the kind of family that if they're in need, I know what door to knock on. I know where I'm going. Or this community, Crossroads, are we going to be like Lot? And are we going to sit at the city gates taking care of the widow and the stranger and the poor? One application that's been in my heart, and I'm not ready to preach this yet because I've got to still wrap my mind and heart around it, but it could come out someday. Um, but when God placed his people in the promised land, one of the things he said was this. He said, don't cut the corners of your field. I have to understand, when he put them in the promised land, all the ancient markers were already there and ready. So family of Insalcoma would be given a field like this, about the size of this gem, and this would be all that I own. This would be it. And God says... Don't cut the corners. What I like about this is he never specifies how big the corner is. So you could know how generous Rod is just by walking past my field and saying, whoa, that's a small corner. Or whoa, that guy's generous. And I was thinking, now how do I apply that concept to today? And I know it's this. I know it's not just saying, hey, I'm giving up Starbucks so I got a couple extra dollars to give away or giving up a couple pizzas every week so I can give that away. I think it's much greater. I think it's 
me determining that my garage is always going to be open and that the world knows it and anyone in need can anytime come into my garage and take whatever they want. And it might even go beyond that. It might be, hey world, not only is my garage open, but the doors of my house, I'm no longer locking them. And if you have need, come, take. Whether it be my dishwasher or whether it be my chair or my table or my TV or whatever it is, if you have something that you need, take it. And some of us, I know, we're just thinking, no, 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 no. You're going to be taken advantage of. You know why we conclude that? Because instinctively, we all have been taught to think what we have is mine. It's mine. Are you kidding me? There are people working a whole lot harder than you and I who have but nothing. And this is no more radical than anything I read in Acts chapter 2. Oh, I got to get going. All right. Um, not only does God call Abraham and us to be city gates. Oh, I wonder what my problem was. I dropped my notes on the ground. But God also... calls us to be priests. See, that's what Abraham is in our text. Abraham is a priest. And don't let that word intimidate you because priests are, are simply people who have real fellowship and real intimacy with God. They not just know about God, they know him. Their lives are infected with him. They live and breathe the presence of God. That's a priest. And a priest's purpose in the world is to bring people to God, or better yet, to bring God to people. And this is Abraham. This describes Abraham. Abraham's a person who knows God, he walks with God, he hears God's voice, he knows God's heart. Abraham, in the truest sense of the word, is a friend of God. I love how Abraham prays because it shows the intimacy that he has with God. First of all, there's this incredible, incredible humility. Because he knows who God is, and he knows who he is. In light of God, all he can say is, dust and ashes, dust and ashes. Isaiah prayed the same thing. Woe is me. People know God always feel like dust and ashes before a holy God. But not only is this guy humble, but he also has this amazing confidence and boldness. In fact, the text says Abraham approaches God, and the word approaches there is a technical term. It's what an attorney does when he approaches the judge, when he approaches the bench. Now, not only can that be intimidating, but I want to also add to this, remember, this is a time when people thought they might die if they had to approach God. That's why Jacob at Penuel said, I saw God face to face, yet my life was spared. And so what Abraham is demonstrating here is serious guts. He's risking his life, but not only does he show guts, he has chutzpah. What I see Abraham doing is I see him 
taking this intimate walk he has with God and using it as leverage. The prayer of a righteous man leverages much. And he kind of just takes God by the shirt tails. And and once he gets them, it's like he's not going to let go. He's not going to let go. He's going to keep pestering God and begging God until he gets what he wants. Now, we are all instinctively thinking you can't pray that way. And I want to say God longs for us to pray this way. To just pester him. priests. Do you know that? New Testament said we're a royal priesthood. And so you're not just looking at the priest, the only priest in this church. I'm looking at the priests right now. You guys are all priests. And that means, just like the nation of Israel, when they stood before Sinai, as a bride stands before her, her groom, ready to be married, God said this to him. He said, I carried you on eagle's wings. Not only did I do that, but out of all the other nations of the world, you, you are my treasure possession. You. I've blessed you. But listen, not only have I blessed you, but I want you now to be priests. A whole kingdom of priests. And what I want you to do is I want you to know me. I want you to walk with me. I want you to get filled with me. But I want you to do that for a purpose. To spill me out on the world. And I want you to partner with me. I want you to pray. I want you to intercede for the nations. And that's what God wants for us. That's why Jesus taught us to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Back in Ezekiel 22, 30 and 31, God's going to judge his people. And this is what it says, the people of the land practice extortion, they commit robbery, they oppress the poor and the needy and mistreat the alien, denying them justice. And then God says, I just looked for a man among them who would build up a wall and stand before me in the gap on behalf of the land. I just looked for a man. Just give me one in this whole kingdom of priests. Give me one priest so that I won't have to destroy it. But God says, but I found none. So I'll pour out my wrath on them and consume them with my fiery anger, bringing down on their heads all that they have done declares the sovereign Lord. And so, yeah, God's judgment, it falls on the world because people fail to know God, but his ultimate judgment falls on us, his people, because we ultimately fail him the most, being priests. Why do people go to hell? You ever thought that? Because they're so bad, so evil? This text tells me people go to hell because they don't have a mediator, someone who will stand in the gap and plead for them. Because they don't have a great high priest 
This is what Abraham was to Sodom. This is what Moses was for his people. This is what God's people are to be to the world and to the nations. What are you standing in the gap for right now? Could be a husband. Could be a son or a daughter. How about your street corner? People you pass every single day. Neighbors, co-workers. Are you pleading on God's behalf for them? When's the last time you prayed with tears in your eyes and a fire in your gut for revival? I want to end with this question. Why did Abraham stop at 10? It's almost shocking. I mean, it's like he's got God on the ropes and then he just quits and goes home. I mean, I, I read this and I just kind of expect Abraham to say, okay, God, I've seen your grace. It is amazing. But please, may I make just, just one more request? Oh, God, the sake of one, the sake of one, would you forgive and spare the city? But he doesn't. He runs out of guts. He runs out of chutzpah. He quits. He goes home. And I think the reason Abraham does this is because he knows he doesn't truly, he doesn't have a truly righteous person in that city. It's not Lot. And even as righteous as Abraham is, it's not Abraham, and Abraham knows it. But our Bible doesn't stop here. And praise God, because the whole central plot line of this book I'm holding is that God does spare the many, the wicked many, for the sake of the one. He spares wicked sodomites like you and me because of the righteous one. And that one is Christ Jesus. And so Jesus, we must see him as more than our example. We got to see Jesus as our great high priest. Because he's like Abraham, who not only risked his life, but look at our high priest. He actually, he gives his life. In fact, there are only two times in scripture where God does not respond to the tzedakah, to, to the cries of the oppressed. One is the Egyptian army, as they're drowning in the Tahom, the deep of the sea. The other is Jesus. Zedekiah! And 
as he cries that, he is suffering the depths of hell. And God is placing on him all his wrath for all sin for all time. And not only does Jesus cry out, Zedekiah, but there on the cross, he hangs as our great high priest. Father, forgive them. Spare them. For the sake of the righteous one, you spare the wicked many. And God's answer is yes. And Jesus never goes home. He never quits. In fact, right now, this is such an awesome thought. He's interceding for you and he's interceding for me. This is what it says in Hebrews 7. But because Jesus lives forever and has a permanent priesthood, therefore he's able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Always. And in the eternal city, the gates, it says there in Revelation 21, are always open for the poor. In spirit, who enter the kingdom of heaven. How dare we? How dare we? As people so blessed of God, not be city gates and priests interceding for this world. Let's pray.